Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Have you ever been in a corn maze? The reason they work is because you can only see right in front of you. If you had a live drone feed, you could easily orient yourself and find the way out. This is the benefit of history. We live in a postmodern culture, but it's hard to see or understand what that means since we're surrounded with it. In this exceptional presentation, Keegan Chandler guides us through the history of pre-modernism, modernism, and postmodernism, so that we can orient ourselves to how many people in our world think and approach life. Not only will this give you a drone's eye perspective of our current situation, but it will also help you understand how to better share your faith with postmodern people. Here now is episode 147, part 5 of the 2018 Apologetics Conference in Paducah, Kentucky. Meta narratives and failed promises: the journey from pre-modernism to post-modernity with Keegan Chandler. If you don't mind, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to get down to it and talk about some very important things. Some things uh, which, uh, as Jerry mentioned, have been uh, discussed and touched on um, in other sessions that we've had. At this point in the conference, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go a bit deeper into this very, very important topic um, of postmodernism. And we're going to be drawing out some elements and considering a couple of other dimensions to this very critical uh, worldview that's emerged in our society. And then on the other hand, we're going to be bringing a lot of these topics together in order to uh, really look at a big picture, because we really, really need to get this historical progression down. And this historical progression of how we got to this postmodern world is incredibly uh, important for understanding exactly what postmodern is, what its benefits are uh, from a Christian perspective, what some of its weaknesses are from uh, a Christian vantage point. And this will ultimately help us see where I think we need to go from here. Just uh, for clarity's sake, I'm going to be looking at three questions today. First, what is postmodernism? Second, how in the world did we get here? And third, well, now that we're here, where do we go? Uh, now, I'll begin by saying that it's very easy to look around at our culture today and be quite disturbed. <laughs> there are a lot of very disturbing things happening in our society, especially among uh, the opinions of young people in the West. A lot of these sentiments pouring out of academia are very troubling. And you'll hear a lot of people uh, in Christian circles and in secular circles blaming postmodernism. You hear a lot of people uh, ascribing uh, a lot of the social and intellectual chaos to postmodernism. Who's ever listened to Jordan Peterson on YouTube? Anybody? Okay, several people, a lot of people. Postmodernism is a word continuously in his mouth, right? It's those blasted postmodernists. That was my best Canadian. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it's become this big, scary monster for a lot of people, especially for Christians. So it's important for us as Christian apologists to be able to cut through the hype, to be able to really understand exactly 
uh, what's going on here, to cut through these misunderstandings and get at the heart of what postmodernism really is so we're able to address it. And it's incumbent upon us, I think, as good apologists to conduct this analysis as humanely and as fairly as possible. It can be very easy to turn postmodernists into cardboard cutouts and into kind of caricatures of of people. Uh, But they are real people who are asking real questions that deserve uh, real answers. Um, So our first step is to humanize our opponents so we can get it right. Uh, I like Jordan Peterson a lot. I like a lot of what he has to say. Uh, And he's definitely the biggest public voice out there who's uh, warning the public about postmodernism. But if you listen carefully, he really doesn't understand it. He's actually pretty darn wrong about uh, some very important aspects of postmodernism. But you guys, with you, we're going to cut through some of these misconceptions, and at the end, or we're going to hopefully be uh, even uh, better informed on a couple of these points than uh, the world's most popular psychologist. So that's, that'll be pretty cool. Uh, and maybe we can get to talking a little bit about him and some of the things you might be hearing him say, uh, maybe in the questions and answers. But first, we need to define our terms. What is postmodernism? Uh, the word first emerged in the world of art and architecture in the late 1950s, 1960s. Um, and eventually it came to describe the work of a segment of French philosophers in the 1960s and 70s, uh, like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, who is a man, not a woman, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, you guys could probably throw out a few others. Now, would all these guys describe themselves as postmodernists? A couple of them didn't. There's a little famous anecdote where Michel Foucault says, what's postmodernism? I'm not up to speed. <laughs> um, Lyotard does use the word. He has a book, The Postmodern Condition. But uh, it's essentially uh, the way that we describe a worldview that has developed based on the ideas of a lot of these uh, French philosophers. So postmodernism is an attitude. It's a way of looking at things. It's not a single doctrine. It's a set of doctrines. It's a worldview. Uh, And though there are many convoluted elements to uh, the postmodern worldview and its concerns, it's not an entirely inherent and incomprehensible mess. Uh, There are some strengths to consider that I think Christians do need to consider. Um, But if I had to reduce it to the ridiculous, uh, I would identify a few very interrelated guiding principles. And if we follow along with these principles, it's going to kind of help us triangulate onto what postmodernism is. People have a very hard time defining postmodernism, and we'll see why as we, as we get into it. But I think if we kind of use these couple of very closely interrelated principles as our roadmap, then we'll head in the right direction towards understanding kind of exactly what's going on here. Okay, so uh, let's go through these really quickly. So the first, there is no objective truth. Second, there are only interpretations. Third, there is no meta-narrative. And lastly, which interpretation prevails in society is a function of power, not of truth. Okay, so let's talk about these. Um, the first one, objective or universal truth doesn't exist. There's nothing that is universally true for all people. Rather, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Second, there are only interpretations. In fact, there are an infinite number of ways to interpret something. 
Indeed, every single minute detail of life can be interpreted in myriad ways, and not one of them is more correct than another. An illustration that we might use to describe this is to think about a book that you might read. And when you zero in on the smallest minute detail, a word, if you look at that single word, well, there are various ways to interpret that word, right? And you open up the dictionary, there may be several different definitions right there. So which one is it? Well, you back out from that, and then you can uh, interpret the sentence, can't you? Well, then you can also interpret the passage, and you can also interpret the chapter. And now we can interpret it the entire book. So if you kind of think of that, you can apply that illustration to our world, to reality. And it's true, right, that we can really, we can interpret in our own way even the smallest, uh, tiniest, most minute detail. Uh, And that may not be very surprising to you. You might say, yeah, well, Keegan, yeah, of course we can interpret everything. Everybody's always interpreting the data, right? But the stunning conclusion of postmodernism is that the reason why there are seemingly infinite numbers of interpretations is because there actually is no text there at all. That's kind of a postmodern slogan. There is no text. So um, Jacques Derrida is very famous uh, for kind of uh, coining this. There is no text. It's not just that we all bring our biases and proclivities and influences to the table when we're interpreting the world, which is true. It's that there is no correct interpretation because there's no objective reality to be correct about. Okay? Now, third, who can tell me what a meta-narrative is? So a meta-narrative is a uh, narrative that is based on an objective truth that you uh, are able to uh, draw out implications from. Right, yeah, it's very closely tied to objective truth, which is why postmoderns uh, might reject it. I've got a definition for us here. A meta-narrative is an overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. Okay, so it's an overarching story. It's a meta-narrative is a single overarching story that gives meaning and purpose to all of our experiences, and it's something that's universally true for everybody. Okay, the postmodernist rejects that. Famously, Leo- Leotard would reject all meta-narratives. Well, because there can't be one single thing that's true for everybody. So there really is no overarching story. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay, so if all of this is true, if these first three points are true, well, we have a problem, really. Because if you look around at society, there are vast swaths of people uh, that believe certain things are true. So what's going on with that, right? Why is everybody just convinced of certain interpretations of reality? Why are so many scientists and uh, religionists, politicians and doctors just convinced? Well, that must be because the people and systems in power must have uh, exerted their influence on them in some way. Okay, that's the conclusion. So, Dan, you mentioned last evening about the phrase, truth is power. This is famously uh, drawn up by uh, Foucault. Uh, He has a book, uh, Discipline and Punish, from 1975, uh, in which he uh, suggests that knowledge, uh, truth, is established by those who have the power to punish, right? So there are certain systems, there are certain institutions that are exerting this influence on people. People only believe that uh, there are two genders, for example, 
um, uh, because scientists have said so. And why have those scientists said so? Well, they must have been under the pressure of power. Maybe it was subconscious. Maybe there was money involved, right? There, there was some external force exhibiting some pressure on this scientist to come to that conclusion. And he passes that on to you and you ignorantly perpetuate that. Uh, that's the idea here. And sometimes you'll even find some postmodernists who are so radical that they'll say that actually imposing our will on others is actually what science is all about. That science isn't really about discovering truth. That science is really just a sophisticated way of imposing our will on other people. Now, this might sound really radical to you, right? And it is radical. Who wants to uh, uh, give me a few examples of some things that you might that a postmodernist today might say are just social constructs that have been developed after the pressures of power? Marriage, the way that marriage is laid out. It's a traditional marriage. Okay. Gender roles. Gender roles. Yep. Yep. Property ownership. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these are what we would call social constructs. Binary gender, heteronormative sexuality, traditional marriages. We're only deceived by the power structures into thinking that these things really are true. Okay, so that's, that's it. That's the basic worldview. But in light of this, postmodernism now has a mission. Once you become a postmodernist, once you've seen the light that the world is full of arbitrary and oppressive social constructs, your mission is now to deconstruct all of these social constructs. That's why postmodernism is often called deconstructionism. So now what your mission is to do is to warn everybody else. You've got to call out these constructs when you see them. And how do you do it? You can detect constructs by performing postmodern analysis of art, of literature, of, of religion, of political theories. You read art and literature through the lens of those four guiding principles that we talked about. So there are a lot of postmodern critiques of, uh, of art, especially. Uh, that's really where all of this started. Um, that you can find out there on the internet. This is, and a lot of people don't even realize that this is what it is whenever they're reading it. But you know, sometimes you, uh, there might be a movie in which some uh, knight comes in and he saves a princess, right? And you go, oh, well, that was a nice movie. And then you read some article and somebody's just going crazy. And they're like, no, this is, this is a portrayal of the systematic subversion of females by the patriarchy. <laughs> And you're like, were we watching the same movie? I mean, the guy saved the princess and it was fun and what? Right? Because what they're trying to do is, is to deconstruct. They're taking that, uh, that mythology and they're deconstructing it and showing you how all the different pressures of power have led people to establish these different gender roles, for example. A very strong impulse uh, in, in the postmodern worldview is... Um, that history is wrong. History is a mythological construct. You know, we might look back, we might read a history book, you know, that tells us about the founding of America. You guys probably read something like this in school, right? Uh, you know, once upon a time, there were some people who wanted religious freedom, and they came over to America. Uh, when they came here, they met up with some natives, they helped them out, and people began to settle and to tame this wild world, and they stretched from coast to coast, and that's, and that's where we are, and, you know, God bless America, okay? You might hear that, na- that narrative, right? 
A postmodernist would say, that's just a construct, right? That's a false mythological framework. And actually, America's real story, from another point of view, is a story of oppression, right? Where some people came in and they stole some other people's land. So see, it's all of your biases that are causing you to uh, construct this mythology. So we have to destroy that. We have to destroy the meta-narrative, right? That whole overarching story about America and its destiny and where we've come from, where we're at, and where we're trying to go, and where we absolutely will go. It's just a bunch of hogwash. Okay, so you can see this is happening all over the place, but people might not necessarily say that this is what it is. I mentioned the, uh, the art world. And I'm going to talk for a second about a really bad piece of art. If you want to uh, sit down with me over a few drinks and nerd out over how bad this movie is, then we can totally do that. But I bet a lot of you didn't realize that this is a postmodern overture, a postmodern opera. I'm sitting there watching this movie. I'm like, does anybody else see this? This is incredible. It is actually, okay, it's, it's a bad movie. I don't really recommend watching it. But... It does have some sophisticated, it, it's more sophisticated, you know, than episode one, okay, uh, in terms of what it's trying to do. Um, so I'm just going to go through a couple of these things. If you don't like spoilers, close yours, but you're not going to watch it anyway because you trust me. Um, and, you know, it's been out for a long time, so it's off the table, right? Why do people traditionally like Star Wars? Because it's pretty cut and dry, it's actually very dualistic, right? You've got the light side, you've got the good side, and it's the clash between good and evil, and you've got the hero's journey in there, and it's all really nice. So think about that. You've got an old-school Star Wars, the hero's journey. Ah, that's a meta-narrative, isn't it? It's an overarching story that gives context to the experiences. It's heading in a definite direction. It's just going to happen, right? And people like that. Oh, it's very clear, good and evil. Hmm, well, what does this movie do? The director, Ryan Johnson, he's a very subversive fellow. And it's subverting everything that you think is going to happen at every step. You think Luke's going to be some awesome hero? He's a cranky old man. You think Ray's going to be somebody special? She's a nobody. You think Snoke is going to be the big bad guy? Here we go. He's he's done. Right? It's subverting your expectations. It's subverting a narrative at every step of the way. And here's an interesting thing. It's also subverting the good and evil paradigm. Okay, in this, now, back in the day, there was the Force, and you wanted the the Jedis were were the good guys, right? Not so in this one. Not so. Here, Luke has become very disillusioned with it all. And you can kind of see the Force in this movie as a metaphor for truth, and he talks about this, and he, he's, he says he shut himself off from the force, okay? He's like, he's done with it. And Ray's like, well, what's going on? What's the matter? And he goes, you think the Jedis have a monopoly on the force? They don't. And she's like, whoa, what are you, what are you talking about? I thought we were the good guys. He's like, your side only thinks that they have the truth. You're, you, you only think that you're, that you're the, the true morality, the people who are truly upholding morality here. And he tells her, you're not going to find your answers on the good side or the dark side. So what does she do? She goes on this little island, and she goes to the little, like, fountain of light that represents, like, the Jedi side. And she's looking for answers, and she can't find any. And then she goes down to the depths, to the little dark side pit, right? And she's looking for answers, and she can't find any. It's all gray. Nobody has a monopoly on truth. It's all just, you know, depends on your point of view. Now, here's the next thing. There's another part where uh, there are these sacred Jedi texts that are supposed to tell the Jedis how they're supposed to live, right? And they're like in this little, 
goofy, you know, Jim Henson-style tree over here, <laughs> all right, like from the Dark Crystal or something. Okay? Oh, there's, and there's a, a puppet, except Yoda's not a puppet anymore. He's like CGI. Anyway, don't get me started. All right. <laughs> so there's these sacred texts, right? And, and Luke says, these are the texts. These are the precious texts. These are going to tell me how to live. And what does Yoda do? He destroys them because there is no text. Hmm. Sounds familiar. The text doesn't matter. The text isn't what's important. Yoda says it's all about how you feel. Reach out with your feelings. Just do what feels right. That's how you live properly. It's however you feel. This is very different. Do you see the change that's happened here? You can look at the change that's happened in Star Wars. It's kind of a microcosm for you know, what's happened here. So there's no text. Destroy it. doesn't matter. They're not important. It's all about in here, which is actually opposite because isn't the dark side like letting go of your feelings like in the old movies? You know, if don't, don't give in to you know, your emotions and anger because that leads to hate and hate leads to the dark side, right? Oh, interesting. And then the last thing, and I'll get off the Star Wars thing. There's a part, uh, Kylo Ren, this character, he's a great postmodernist. He is the ultimate deconstructionist. He says, forget the past. He's like he's screaming it. He's screaming it, right? He says, kill the past, destroy it, burn it down if you have to. And that's what this entire movie is doing, is it's taking the Star Wars mythology and it's completely burning it down to the ground and showing you how when you look really closely, it's all just a bunch of made-up crap. Right? You thought Luke was this great hero, but really, he's not. Okay, so if we've really deconstructed everything, though, then what do we fill it with? This is what we fill it with. Experience and community. Now that reality is completely void, it's free to be shaped by our own personal experiences. Personal experience plays a significant role in postmodern thought. Since there's no objective reality, there's no single and no single interpretation of reality is more true than another, then what I perceive, my interpretation is just as powerful as that of any scientist, right? What right does he or the President of the United States or anybody have uh, to tell me what reality is? So if a scientist tells me that there are only two genders, but I've experienced a third or a fourth or a fifth, then my experience can easily override what that scientist is saying. Because modernist science is not only just another interpretation, I know that it's an interpretation arrived at through the pressures of power. So feelings, personal insight, anecdotal evidence, personal experience, these become the basis for identity and life. And from there, what you see happens is a collective begins to form. Another important aspect of postmodernism is the value that it places on community. Community is massively important. You build groups of people who have had similar experiences. So experience forms the core of a community, and this group gives people now a community identity. So now our politics, our philosophy, everything is based around this community identity, giving way to what people sometimes call identity politics. I'm sure people have heard that before, right? Okay, it's all interconnected. Let's just talk for a second about how uh, experience and community has Uh, you can see some of these postmodern impulses even arriving in the church today. If you look at churches back in the day, or even, uh, and we'll talk more about this progression, but if you look in what we call pre-modern, pre-modern church, 
and the Catholic Church is still an example of that. What's the focus of the service? Sacraments, right? It's all about what the authority hands down to me. It's the sacraments. That's the goodie. That's what I want. There's, such a, there's, not, there's no emphasis on knowledge and learning. In fact, the message is in a language you don't understand, <laughs> right? Because that's not what it's about. It's all about the sacraments given to me by the authority, which is supposed to give me eternal life. Now, we move uh, forward a little bit, and, and modernist churches and Protestant churches are a good example of that. What does that look like? Well, it's all about the message. It's all about the sermon, right? Dale pointed that out, that especially in, uh, in our, I, most of us are Protestants in here, I think, in our tradition, it's all about the sermon. It's all about, we, we pour massive amounts of time into learning and into educating people, right? But there's some shifts that have been happening. If we were going to find a postmodern driven church, what do you think the emphasis would be on? Community, okay. I'm looking for two things. Community is one. Music, okay. Now, now I love music. I love worship, right? But what you see is you see the sermon getting shorter and shorter and shorter and the worship getting bigger and longer and more involved with more production and it becomes a more all-sensory experience, right? Before I became a biblical Unitarian, um, my wife and I had actually, we were actually visiting churches in the area and I, we walked into this church in Houston and I literally thought I was at a rock concert. I'm not exaggerating. I know you hear some, you know, people say that sometimes, this isn't a rock concert, but no, I'm serious. There were smoke machines and there were like lasers, you know, that they usually have like a Coldplay concerts and they were like blinding me and I was like, what's happening? It was incredible, but an all sensory experience. And you know what's really cool? I mean, int- not cool. It's interesting. Uh, I, was, I was actually looking at church websites, like in my area, and I noticed that a lot of them on their, all these updated websites they've had recently, they start putting the word experience like right there on the banner. Come experience Christ, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with experiencing Christ, but the, but the emphasis is different, right? Or before the emphasis is on the authority figure saving me, now, then we had an emphasis on learning, and now we have an emphasis on experience. Um, and it's interesting because many churches are kind of like caught halfway between some of these. They all have parts of them at the same time, uh, really trying to find ourselves. Okay, so just to wrap this part up here, um, I want you to keep in mind the, the, uh, the mission. The mission of the postmodernists, again, is to deconstruct the social constructs. And so I hope you can already begin to see how antithetical this worldview really is to what I would call a biblical worldview, which um, upholds universal truth, universal morality. And we're going to get into, uh, in, into more of that. Uh, but in order to understand exactly how postmodernism interacts with Christianity, uh, what its benefits are for it, what its weaknesses are for it, um, we have to understand how in the world people came to start thinking this way. We have to look at the development in its historical context. We have to look at how we went from a pre-modern world to a post-modern world. Pre-modernity is a historical era. Okay? Pre-modernism is a worldview. So you could say pre-modernism, for example, is a worldview which developed out of a historical era. Okay? But you can't talk about one without the other. It's really, really important. <clears throat> Let's uh, discover what makes us all tick. What is pre-modernity? We've got some serfs there. <laughs> they look like they're trudging away. 
Pre-modernity is a historical era. This is the world in which the Bible was written before the advent of modern science, and this period lasted through the Middle Ages all the way up to about the time of the Renaissance, and I know uh, uh, Jerry and Sean uh, talked about that. So what characterized the basic worldview which emerged out of this period? And what did this world promise us? Well, it maintained a belief in objective truth, a belief also in authoritative sources of that objective truth, and pre-modernity also promised that if we only found and trusted in the right authoritative sources, then, th- then we would be introduced to truth. Pre-modernity also promised us something about history. It gave us a meta-narrative. Uh, which religion dominated uh, the pre-modern history of the West for the last several thousand years? Christianity, right? Christianity. Christianity has traditionally uh, had a linear view of history. That history is like an arrow, and it's pointing towards us in a certain direction. It's a line, and it's heading towards a certain climax. And that climax uh, will be when, when God and Jesus come to intervene dramatically in human history and make everything finally right for us, right? So history is in, uh, in the pre-modern view is an arrow headed in a certain direction. So there's an overall story Uh, behind that, and ultimately a promise that if we just find this authoritative source of truth, if we trust in that authoritative source of truth, he's going to introduce us to the truth, and if we hold on to that, then we're going to get some, uh, we're going to have some really great benefits for us uh, in our life at the end of the age when God dramatically intervenes in history. Okay, so I want you guys to tell me, what is good for Christianity? From a Christian perspective, what is helpful uh, about this worldview? Say it creates order and guidelines. Mm-hmm. They have to trust and follow. Right, very good. Anybody else? I would say that it, it fits. Like you're going to believe in the scriptures. This is what. If you didn't have this view, you couldn't really believe in the scriptures. <laughs> the scriptures are exactly that. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's right. Uh, being the worldview out of which the books of the Bible was, was written, it's uh, unsurprisingly conducive to Christianity in many ways, right? People were already conditioned to look for and accept the kind of uh, absolute truth that Christianity was offering. So from an evangelistic standpoint, if somebody has a pre-modern worldview, it's pretty good, right? You've got pretty good odds as a Christian for for having some effect with them, uh, for Christianity and uh, especially the scriptures appealing to them. However, as good as this may sound, as peachy keen as this may sound for Christianity, I'm going to uh, just share maybe a couple of ways that this worldview was actually detrimental to the Christian faith, uh, and, and not just this worldview, but the world in, out of which it developed. Uh, for example, uh, the pre-modern world's class system and its lack of social mobility ultimately discouraged ordinary from people from learning about the scriptures themselves, right? Because of the station into which they were born, they understood that Uh, scholarship, understanding the scriptures, that's just not for you. And because the scriptures were not available to the average man, and because the Catholic Church had also set up its central doctrines as divine mysteries, the people essentially gave themselves over to the custody of a priest class. The great uh, historian uh, Harnack once said that when a mystery is set up as the central dogma of the church, people automatically come under guardians. So the leadership of the Catholic Church ultimately became the great mediator between God and man. 
And then this leadership and the creeds that it made became the new authoritative source of truth. Uh, And this actually superseded the Bible. It quite literally superseded the Bible. (laughs) So that wasn't very good, right, from my perspective. It's well known that uh, as a consequence of, 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 of this trust and authority, the Western world fell into the Dark Ages when this new authority structure ultimately suffocated culture and learning outside of the prescribed boundaries. And it's true that eventually people kind of had enough of all of that. Christians had enough of all of that. And they ultimately wanted to revive the arts, literacy, and sciences that had characterized the West before the uh, rise of the Catholic Church. And, and when they opened up that Pandora's box, it began to shatter the sort of just-trust-us mentality of, of, um, of pre-modernism. And I'm going to give you guys just two examples, uh, really quick, of big turning points in the West that disproved this promise of postmodernism. Remember the promise? If you just trust the authoritative source, you're going to be guided into the truth. Okay, the first one is the Reformation. People started reading the Bible for themselves, and, well, surprise, surprise, it didn't quite line up with what the authoritative sources, i.e. the Catholic leadership and its tradition, was saying. Uh, second, Galileo's defeat of Aristotle. You guys see the, the picture there with him holding the lead balls while standing on the leaning tower of Pisa? Who knows that story? Anybody know that story? Okay. For thousands of years, Aristotle's hypothesis was just taken as authoritative. He said that a heavier object if, uh, is, and a lighter object, uh, the heavier object is going to hit the ground first. People just said, oh, yeah, sure, of course. And nobody challenged it. Why? Because Aristotle's an authoritative source. So Galileo says, hmm, I don't know about that. So he gets all the town together. They think he's crazy. How could you ever doubt the great Aristotle? And he climbs up to the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I don't know if it was leaning at that time. Maybe it was his fault. I don't know. He gets up there, and he has an obviously heavier uh, uh, ball and a, and a smaller one, and he drops them, and what do you know? They hit the ground at the same time. Sounds kind of silly, right? This is revolutionary. And then, this kind of was like a spark that lit a major fire, because then Galileo subsequently disproves that the, uh, that the sun is going around the earth. Wow. The authoritative sources, the Catholic Church, their credibility is severely damaged at this point. So ultimately, people began to think for themselves and to question authority, giving rise to modernity. Look at all these guys. They're so excited to learn. (laughs) Just like you, except y'all have better hair. This is the era of science, the Enlightenment, a time of reform and revolution, both spiritual and scientific, a uh, very exciting period in human history when the shackles of tradition were being cast off and a brave new world was coming into view and under the microscope. Uh, The Reformation in Europe, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, Darwin's theories, uh, etc., etc., very exciting. So what characterized the elemental worldview that developed during this period? I think Jerry uh, probably helped us out with this a lot already. So the emerging worldview of modernity was characterized by a rejection of authority. No longer should something be believed just because it has a long and varnished status or because lots of people agree with it. Uh, Indeed, for the modernist, time and numbers do not guarantee truth. 
uh, the belief in objective universal truth, that was maintained, that was carried over from pre-modernity. Uh, and people could still really get at this truth. But instead of simply going to authoritative sources to find this truth, it could be gained now on one's own by way of reason. Man could utilize the scientific method to determine what was true. And in this way, the promise of modernism ultimately developed. This worldview promised that if mankind just stuck to these principles, if it would just use reason and science to attain to the truth, then human society will progress and progress. Better religion, better philosophy, better science, a better human society, a better worldwide culture based on reason will emerge over a period of time. You just got to give us enough time. Just trust humanity. We can do it. So this became the new meta-narrative. So what were the benefits of this worldview for Christianity? Anybody? Good. Very important. Back to the sources. Back to the sources. Ad fontem. Some good things, right? Uh, as a Protestant, as a radical reformer, uh, I see quite a few benefits for the Christian religion here. It's true that not all traditions should be accepted. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong about a tradition, but it has to be correct, right? There are bad traditions uh, out there, even bad traditions based on the Bible that are actually terrible for the faith. And I think Jesus thought this way as well, actually. I think this is a deeply Christian sentiment. Jesus fought against the so-called traditions of the elders, didn't he? The religious leaders in his time. He said they were making the word of God null and void because of their tradition. So I think Jesus would approve of this basic premise that everything should be tested and we shouldn't just take someone's word for it just because they have a long tradition and because a lot of people subscribe to it. Uh, of course, the maintenance of a belief in objective truth, that's also very good. And I think as a general principle, human reason should be valued. Some Christians traditionally have not valued reason. They've openly not valued reason. I know this is a controversial quote, but a very famous one, right, where Martin Luther says, reason is a whore. Throw dung on her face. Hmm, wow, very vivid of you, Herr Luther. And that, that's a little controversial quote. People say, like, I didn't really mean it that way, and whatever, right? But he has some other quotes, too, where he says, I tell you, this and every other doctrine must not be based on reason. Okay, so there's something going on there with with Lutheran reason, despite what people say. But, okay, ultimately, forget Luther. Bottom line, there's a lot of people who have not valued reason uh, when it comes to Christianity, and I don't think that's right as a general rule. You know, um, in Isaiah chapter 1, God tells his people to use reason, to, joining, to join him in reasoning together, to come to an agreement about what is true and what is false. So I see reason as a gift from God and something to be used in order to test propositions. Uh, even theological pr uh, propositions, especially theological propositions that are inherited from tradition. So those are some good things, right? What negative impact did uh, modernism have for Christianity? Well, the modernist skepticism about authoritative sources of truth was extended to the Bible. The absolute authority of the scriptures was challenged, and the reliance of human being on these scriptures and on the God who inspired them was effectively replaced by many people by reliance on reason and science alone as the mean by which we are to uh, acquire truth and right standards of living. Right, this is a problem, obviously, for the Christian religion. Uh, Christians have typically believed uh, that we learn our standard of right and wrong from God, uh, from the Scriptures. We've been talking about that uh, a little bit, about uh, more, uh, God's moral standard. Christians typically haven't believed 
that uh, mankind is just able to figure out what is, uh, what is right and wrong on his own. Uh, Dale made some great points earlier uh, that science isn't going to tell us about morality. And a lot of Christians have doubted that just man, by way of reason alone, can come to understand what is, uh, what is absolutely right and wrong. Uh, another problem we might say is the reliance uh, and overemphasis, you might say, on, on science and reason as the means of determining what is true, combined with an impulse towards naturalism that developed, uh, which tended to uh, minimize or distrust the reality of the supernatural. Right, so the supernatural things recorded in the Bible, the miracles, the demons, things of that sort, well, these can't be tested empirically, uh, so we can't say that's true, we shouldn't say that's true. Well, obviously, this, is, this uh, approach is a problem for the biblical worldview, right? And uh, the other problem with modernity is ultimately, well, this promise that developed here. Uh, many people began to look to this promise of modernism about an enlightened society instead of a promise of God about the fulfillment of peace and human happiness. Again, modernism says, right, if we just stick to reason and science, then mankind can be trusted to ultimately produce a better and better society. Well, if mankind can do that on his own, what need do we have for God? What need do we have for the Messiah? If we can save the world, if we can build the kingdom of light here on our own, then who needs divine intervention, right? Obviously, uh, this is a problem. But what happened to this promise? Well, there are several things we could talk about here, but the most important is probably this. Modernity had given us the promise, trust humanity. But for many people, this failed miserably as the allegedly enlightened societies brought us the wars and atrocities of the 20th century. Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, communism in the East, scientific discrimination. See my little eugenics tree up there? These societies are only dutifully following the modernist principles and using science and reason to build a better world. But they failed. And it proved to many people that humans could not be trusted to arrive conclusively at what is true and good for all people. The world learned also that when we, when we remove the divine and the supernatural, when we believe that humanity can be trusted to save the world, we're only deceiving ourselves. So some people began to react against this. People began to think. Uh, people saw on the one hand that there were some good things modernism had done, but that we needed to now move in a new direction. This is how you can think about postmodernism. Yes, postmodernism describes what came after modern, modernism, but it's also something which is building on some of the achievements that modernism had brought to the table and kind of going further with it. On the one hand, modernism was right to reject authority, these postmodern people are thinking. But modernism was wrong to think that human beings can be trusted to arrive at the truth on their own. And beyond that, people began to look. What were the core elements that both pre-modernism and modernism had in common? Uh, well, objective truth, right? That's kind of the driving force behind those two things, they would say. So it seems that the only way we can really break free, the only way we can uh, finally find happiness is to dispel the myth of objective truth. We must be allowed to build our own reality. So motivated by some of these critiques, we enter post-modernity. Okay, now there's some debate about whether or not we're still coming out of modernity and whether or not we're still really, that we're actually in post-modernity. 
Some people think we aren't fully there yet, but segments of our society are. It's up for debate. Time will tell. Some people think postmodernism is already dead. <laughs> uh, take a trip uh, to this campus, maybe, and uh, we'll see if that's the case. So again, just for review, what characterizes this worldview? Well, now a rejection of objective truth, a rejection of authority, a rejection of meta-narratives, and a distrust that reason can bring us enlightenment or satisfaction. So what's the, the POMO promise? <laughs> the POMO promise is now that mankind will finally gain happiness if it abandons objective truth, which is what pre-modernism and modernism had in common. Okay, now you might be asking, okay, are you going to do this whole what's good for Christianity, what's bad for Christianity again? Yes, I am. What could possibly be good for Christianity in this worldview? Well, postmodernism rightly blows the whistle on the failures of modernity, particularly in its failed promise to bring us the perfect society by way of reason and science alone. That is certainly something uh, helpful from a Christian perspective. We should call that out. As Christians, we believe that a better world, that, a human, that human happiness will, will happen, but it will be brought about by God at the end of the age when God and Jesus intervened and finally make things better. Another helpful element of postmodernism is that it doesn't hold to the idea that the only things that are real or true are those which can be tested empirically through science. It doesn't discount the supernatural, uh, the transcendent. It leaves ample room for the divine. So that's a good thing, right? <laughs> and lastly, there is truth to the uh, postmodern idea that everyone is interpreting the data around them, that everyone brings their own biases and backgrounds and proclivities to the table when they're interpreting the world. That's certainly true, and it's very important to always be cognizant of that, both in the opinions of others and in our own opinions. But as we've already seen, postmodernism has a lot of weaknesses also. And these are things that I think, as Christian apologists, we should emphasize in our interaction with the postmodern world, okay? So we're going to go through uh, a couple of these problems that I see, and maybe like pre-modernism and modernism, maybe postmodernism will crumble too. First, on the surface, there seem to be fundamental problems with postmodernist statements like, there is no objective truth. Uh, which seems very much like a truth statement to me. Um, how postmodernists can make the various positive statements that they do has just always mystified me. And I've read a lot about it. It just really challenges me. Isn't the conclusion that there is no objective truth merely another interpretation of the data? Isn't that just your interpretation of it? Furthermore, if objective reality doesn't exist then it seems like I can just say postmodernism is wrong. And no postmodernist could ever prove me incorrect. Because uh, it would involve uh, an appeal to objective reality, which would be self-defeating, right? So uh, I suspect that the whole system underneath there, despite all of its fluff, and there's a lot of fluff, I don't recommend you read one of these books unless you're trying to cure your insomnia or seeing how fast you can go crazy. Um, so there's a funny anecdote, actually, right? Um, uh, there was one philosopher, and he, he met with um, a Michel Foucault, and he said, 
He said, Michelle, when I sit down and talk to you, like you're very easy to understand. I understand all your points. I understand all your objections. It's very clear. But when I read your book, like I cannot even fathom what you're saying. And he said something like, uh, well, you know, in our circle, you know, in his French circle, you have to do certain things. So there's a certain language that you've got to adopt. There's a certain intellectual um, fantasy that you've got to put out here for people. You've got to make it really big and flashy and showy. So they've really developed their own language. So I'm not kidding when I say it's really, really hard, really hard to understand. And that's, and that's deliberate. But anyway, I suspect that the whole system may inside be lacking intellectual rigor. And I think as Christian apologists, we may be able to uh, expose that and hopefully demonstrate some better alternatives for people. Uh, Second, the postmodern assertion that everybody is interpreting the world around them, that needs to be addressed. And I think it's right, actually, this idea that there are, endlessly, uh, that there are virtually endless interpretation of the, uh, interpretations of the world, that's correct. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that one of those interpretations isn't right. It doesn't follow that just because everybody's interpreting and there's a million different interpretations that somebody didn't actually get it right. Or that that means that you can't find out what the real one is. It doesn't follow. Again, we should be aware of interpretations. But they're not a, uh, the truth is not impossible to get at. In light of the failures of modernism, it might seem that way. But as Christians, uh, we would say that this is why we need Scripture as our standard. Okay, next, uh, in the worldview of deconstruction, everything is a construct. <laughs> so when you deconstruct everything, what are you left with? Nothing. Hmm. I believe uh, postmodernism ultimately ends up in nihilism. There are some postmodernists who are pretty hardcore, and they'll just come out and say that. Some kind of will want to deny that a little bit. Um, uh, but I think this actually might be crosswise with the promise of postmodernism, which is ultimately happiness, right? On a, um, because on a very practical level, I think bleakness rarely breeds happiness. But this won't be obvious for everyone until we publicly contrast the nihilism of the postmodern narrative, or lack of a narrative, with the great hope of the Christian meta-narrative, the promise uh, which is the promise of pre-modernity, the one promise that is yet to be proven a failure, right? Uh, postmodernism likes to point a rigid finger at modernism and say, ha, see, your promise failed. But can they do that to the pre-modern Christian worldview? They can't do that, right? Because uh, the jury's still out on that one. Jesus is still coming. He's still on his way. So we still have hope. And I think the Christian meta-narrative and its intrinsic hope is actually the shining beacon for the post-postmodern world. What might an attempt at a Christian solution for the post-postmodern world look like in my book? Very briefly, we're going to take everything we've learned about this trajectory from pre-modernity to post-modernity, and we're going to try to construct our own post-postmodern worldview. We'll see if it's any good. First, I think it would involve a belief in objective truth. It would involve a belief in the right authoritative sources of truth, which is the scripture. Snell that down. We should also uh, believe that reason is valuable, highly valuable. But that reason alone cannot lead us into truth. We also need revelation. 
Finally, the promise needs to be maintained from pre-modernism that true human happiness will be found at the end of the age or in a restored earth brought about by God. So ultimately what we have here is a worldview built on hope, not a worldview built on radical skepticism. If experience really is as fundamental to the postmodernists as, as it seems to be, I say, well, let them experience the nihilism <laughs> of deconstruction. And then let them look across the way to the great hope that you have. And you can then welcome them into your community. So that's my uh, very brief attempt at a Christian, uh, a Christian worldview for the post-postmodern age. Uh, maybe you disagree with it. Maybe you can improve upon it. Please do. Um, but ultimately, uh, in the interest of time, I think that's going to do it. I don't even have my clock on me. Um, we really could go for hours and hours about postmodernism and all of its various ins and outs. But I hope this has at least informed you a little bit more about what postmodernism is, uh, where we've come from, where we're at, and hopefully where we as Christian apologists uh, can take our, our very uh, challenged and troubled world. Well, that's it for this episode today. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to follow up more with Keegan Chandler, he's written a book called The God of Jesus, and you can check that out at thegodofjesus.com, also on Amazon, as well as his blog, buriedeepblog.wordpress.com. I've got links to both of those in the show notes for this episode, as well as my own notes from the lecture that he gave, which you might find helpful as well. Also, I had a couple of comments I wanted to read out. One comes from the last episode, number four, from the Apologetics Conference called Are All Religions the Same? with Dale Tuggy. John Roftos writes, Hello, Sean. I enjoyed the apologetics discussion so far by Kenny and Dale. I think this is necessary for Christians to be at least familiar with these tools as many live in and amongst increasingly secular societies. People need to be reached using this approach as doctrinal matters for them are moot. Considering many do not even believe in God to begin with and have serious doubts in this regard due to the influence from the atheistic poster boys such as Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens and Stephen Hawkins. The atheistic arguments may on the surface appear sound and even logical, especially coming from what the world views as the most eminent and esteemed minds on the subject. But, if you can see clearly through them and how fatally flawed and illogical the arguments are, Christians can, as you say, turn the tables and help them to see that they are actually making a case for the existence of a God when discussing morality and objective truths. I particularly like the point that even though Hitler was considered by most to be horribly cruel and evil, having all of the traits that God is falsely accused of, this is not evidence or proof that he did not exist. Also, with regards to all religions being the same, there were some very nice and useful examples demonstrating that people who say this realize they do not really mean what they say when presented with a simple comparison, e.g. Satanism versus Catholicism. Thanks for doing all the hard work for us, guys. I always feel a little guilty listening with my feet up on the desk. Always enjoy listening to the presentations, and I thoroughly recommend this site to everyone I can as the premier site for theological educational excellence. Thanks so much, John, for writing in. I highly recommend this presentation by Dale Tuggy, especially if you are curious about different religions. He is really an expert. I mean, he didn't go into his qualifications here, but I mean, he has led multiple trips to India. He studied Hinduism, Buddhism, and certainly the Abrahamic faiths 
extensively, much more than somebody who just like picks up a book and then reports what it says. I mean, this guy has been to these temples and these holy places, and he is really an expert on it. Also, Dale has a YouTube class that you can find online where he goes through in detail on all the different world religions. You can find that much more at Dr. Tuggy's website, trinities.org. That's trinity with an S, trinities, I-E-S, dot org. Secondly, I had another comment come in from Richie Temple on an interview with Jerry Weirwell, Interview 28 Exegetical Fallacies. It was one of our most downloaded interviews of all time, even though it was super nerdy. I guess that's just what people want. So anyhow, this is what Richie Temple says. This is well done, and Jerry's articles on the topic, which you listed above, are even better. I read Carson's book, Exegetical Fallacies, about 20 years ago. Though I believe him to be an excellent scholar and agree with most of his points, I found him at times to be a bit too ornery, as well as too dismissive, of other first-class Bible scholars. In addition, as Jerry states on this program, the book is quite technical, so I would highly recommend Jerry's articles instead. They cover most of the same territory in a more pleasing and straightforward manner and are obviously aimed at simply helping the body of Christ to grow in understanding apart from personal rivalries of the scholarly world. I would also agree with Sean's encouragement that one of the keys to keeping this fairly simple and guarding ourselves against fallacies is to read large portions of Scripture, especially in more modern versions such as the ESV Holman Christian Standard Bible, and so on, and to thus become familiar with the subject matter on a broad scale based on the translations of modern translators. Of course, this takes time, but ultimately, most of the details of the individual passages will then properly fit within the whole. Finally, though a bit technical itself, I would also highly recommend the book How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart, 4th edition. This is a comprehensive how-to-study-the-Bible guide and is good for both personal study as well as for a Bible study group to work through together. Of course, there are other similar works that are also good. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Richie. I appreciate your comments and thoughts here. If you are interested in that episode and want to delve into the deep and important world of interpretation, also called hermeneutics, check out Interview 28 and learn about seven exegetical fallacies to avoid when studying the Bible. That's it for today. We'll see you next time when we have the concluding episode of the Apologetics Conference with John Truitt looking at how to do evangelism Jesus' way. Thanks so much, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.